Well, good afternoon, uh, everybody. Uh, it's a joy to be here. And uh, for the last uh, few months, um, I have been uh, doing training for pastors online with Zoom. Uh, some in Myanmar this week and some in Malawi uh, previous to that. And uh, it's a great joy to see somebody's face uh, clearly. Um, the folks in Malawi, what they do is they uh, connect on Zoom and then stick the pastor's phone on a desk. And that's all the, the whole group sees. And uh, so uh, I'm sure that they're looking forward to um, a more intimate uh, uh, kind of service as well. Um, on, the, on the note of Mission International, let me just say that uh, um, we made an appeal some time ago and, and St. Peter's was part of that. Uh, for support for pastors and uh, leaders during the COVID crisis, which continues, of course, here and, and in many parts of the world. And uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who contributed to that. Uh, some of the pastors that we partner with actually tune into this service every week um, and are benefiting from that. And I'm sure they would like to be able to say thank you as well. So, we appreciate very much what has been achieved. Um, we're going to look at that chapter that uh, uh, Crawford has just read to us, but let me pray just before we do so. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for your grace and for your goodness and for the favor that you've shown to us each and every one. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to look at this remarkable book and the first chapter of Revelation, that you would bless us by leading and guiding in that. And we pray that your spirit of truth would lead us into all truth. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, the book of Revelation is clearly an apocalyptic book. Um, there are many other parts of the scripture that are written in a similar kind of fashion, but it stands on its own. But you will find references in Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament that are typically similar to this kind of apocalyptic writing. And uh, God using unusual images uh, to communicate his, his word to us. And, uh, and so the book of Revelation can be complicated and difficult to understand at times. Well, the book of Proverbs says this in, in Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to find it out. And so as Christians, kings and priests within uh, God's kingdom, we have been given the job of not just looking at it and hoping for the best, but to dig deeper and to try and find out uh, what God intends to say to us uh, through this remarkable book. Um, a little bit of background, many of you will know this already, but John is a prisoner, uh, as we've read, on the island of Patmos. And Patmos um, is a, it was a challenging place. Um, John, the Apostle John is probably in his 80s or even his 90s at this stage in his life, and yet he's been taken prisoner and put on the island of Patmos, and prisoners there were required to uh, mine stone for the building of roads 
uh, and other buildings for uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, so he was not um, living the life of Riley on a sunny island, but he was being um, uh, enslaved there. And he tells us later on that uh, he was enslaved for the sake of the gospel and for the testimony of Jesus. And so Patmos was quite a difficult place uh, to, to be. Um, it ha- apparently has no natural water. Um, and so all of the water for the island and for all these prisoners was brought by boat to the island and the, the stones and rocks and whatnot were taken back to the mainland. Now, um, the, 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 the whole of the book is written, uh, at least the first three chapters, is written to um, churches in Asia Minor, and that is in modern-day Turkey. And you can actually see some of the places that are written of in the book of Revelation that still remain with the same names and others where names have been changed uh, to a more modern name for whatever reason. And so, when we begin to look at this particular book, we discover uh, some real uh, interesting material. And I have got to be uh, confess up front that I, uh, I uh, studied a lot of uh, Reverend John MacArthur's material on this uh, to get an understanding of this passage, and I, I could commend his work to you. It's very, very good uh, on this whole situation, and doesn't um, it, it, he un- uncovers the kind of apocalyptic writing and makes it more um, accessible to us. And so I would uh, recommend that to you. Um, overall, Jesus is looking into the heart of his church, into the heart of his people. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is very clear on this, where, where the, um, the prophet Samuel turns up at the house of Jesse um, and is searching for uh, the, the king who will replace Saul to be king over Israel. And he um, sees the, these humongous, powerful soldier sons of, uh, of Jesse, and he looks at the eldest one and he says, this must be him. Look at the size of him. Look at how handsome he is. Look at how strong he is. And God makes it abundantly clear to Samuel, and therefore to us, that God does not look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's fundamental to our understanding of the book of uh, Revelation, and certainly in these first three chapters of the book of which we are looking at chapter one today. God is looking, Jesus is looking into the heart of his people, looking at the heart of the church. And so we begin to, to read here in, in chapter one, verse one, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what's mu- which, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And so you've got a very convoluted way of getting a message to the church of Jesus Christ through all of these people. And uh, so it was very carefully handled. This, this is an important word that had to come from the Father to the church. And John is about to testify as he writes these things down of everything that he saw. And uh, so we continue. He made, he made it known to his ser- ser- servants through John, who testifies everything that he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Then in verse 3 it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, already Crawford has uh, acquired for him a blessing uh, by reading these words out. And blessed are those who hear it as well. So there's a blessing there that we have acquired just by hearing uh, the words of this prophecy. And it says, and take it to heart. So it's not just hearing it, but it's taking it to heart. God wants us, because he sees our heart, he wants us to take his word to our heart uh, and put it into practice. What it is written, because the time is near. Now, in terms of reading the Word aloud, it's tremendous to be in a church where each week, week by week, the Word of God is, writ, uh, is read uh, publicly uh, in the congregation. Uh, I visited a church in India not so long ago, and it was a wonderful experience because not all of the congregation, in fact, very few of the congregation, had Bibles. And so what they did was they got some, uh, someone to stand at the front and to read God's Word line by line. And the congregation repeated it line by line. And so for every line that was read, the congregation repeated it, and the next line, and so on. And it's a wonderful experience to be able to communicate and read the Word of God aloud, and to hear uh, in our own ears what God has to say. And uh, so he says, moving on into verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now that word, these seven churches, yes, there were seven uh, churches there, but the word seven uh, identifies this as being something that is complete. And so it's not just for these seven churches, but it's for the whole church uh, throughout the generations. So that's what's intended uh, by this as well. It wasn't just for these churches. It is for the churches that followed and for our generation as well. So we must listen to what this has to say to us. Um, So the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits of God before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. Now here it's talking about the seven spirits before God's throne, um, and, you know, I was brought up and, and taught that God had one spirit. There was only one spirit. But here it's telling us there are seven spirits. And if you look in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, if you want to find out more about that, uh, you'll see that there are seven spirits of God listed there. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of strength or might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. All of these are listed in Isaiah. And so it may be that that is what John is referring to when, when writing this material. And verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one who is the faithful witness. Now within each of us, God calls us to be faithful, but he knows and we know ourselves that we are not always faithful But he is the faithful witness. He is the one who went all the way to the cross for us. He didn't stop halfway, not like uh, in the Old Testament where where Abraham was taking his son up into the the mountain and was about to put the knife into him when he was stopped 
He only went part of the way, but Jesus went all the way. He fulfilled the sacrifice for us. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, he's not the first person to be raised from the dead, but the Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn son of this new kingdom. He is the elder brother that we have, if you like. He is the firstborn from among the dead, which suggests that there will be many more after him. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Aren't you glad that there is a ruler of the kings of the earth? I don't know if you've been watching anything to do with the American election on TV. I don't want to bring up a sore subject right now. But uh, it's amazing how it's become very polarized and very um, difficult uh, in America at this moment in time. And, uh, and yet, here, we have one that we worship, who is the ruler of the kings, or even presidents, if you like, of the earth. It's wonderful to have this one who is faithful uh, and who is a ruler on our behalf. It says, uh, continuing on in verse 5, to him who loves us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. A remarkable thing, the one who loves us is the same one as, as the faithful witness. The one who loves us also has freed us from our sins. So often we find ourselves that our sin seems to, to capture us and control us somehow. But here it tells us very clearly that we have been freed from our sins by this one. By his blood, it says in verse, the end of verse 5, through the precious blood of Jesus, we have been saved and freed from our sins. There is a, an old hymn that uh, has become a modern uh, rendition now as well, which says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And we are those who have come under uh, that blood through the precious blood of Jesus. We have been uh, cleansed and freed uh, because of the love, that great love that he has for us. But in verse 6, it goes on to say even more. It says, and he made us. So first of all, he loves us. Then he freed us. And now he has made us into a kingdom of priests to serve his God. We have been made into something incredibly special, a kingdom of priests to serve the living God. That is the purpose that he has called us to in worship, because priests lead worship for the earth, for the people, but also priests administer the grace of God uh, to those round about them. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of information about priests and what was their responsibility. And of course, in Christ, we have the great high priest uh, who has come to us and made us to be priests also because of his blood. 
And it says there, to serve God and Father, his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Then in verse 7, it begins to um, bring in some challenging uh, terminology. It says there, look, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples of the earth will wail because of him. And so um, this is a, a, an interesting uh, part, but it refers to many other scriptures that previously. Um, if you look um, back in Acts chapter 1, you'll find uh, that Jesus was taken up from uh, the sight of the disciples and was taken away and he went into the clouds and, and the angel came and said, this one whom you've seen go will come back again in the same way that you've seen him go. So there's a reference to that kind of appearing, quick appearing of Jesus there when he uh, was ascended. And then um, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, um, and it says there, you will find and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there's reference to this elsewhere. And of course, back in Daniel, which we made reference to earlier on, um, he says in verse 13 of chapter 7, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one who looked like the Son of Man coming on clouds. And, and so Jesus went quickly and the Bible says that he's coming back again quickly. That he'll come back in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 says, uh, that he'll come back very quickly indeed. And um, here we, we see in, in verse 7 of, of Revelation 1 that he's coming in clouds. And eventually, once he appears, every eye will see him. It's not going to be done in a corner. It's not going to be done quietly somewhere. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And, and again, you can imagine the, the shock and the horror and the awe that will be in the hearts of those who pierced him when they see him. But it says here, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. And that word mourn can be, can be translated to wail uncontrollably uh, because of him. Artie Kendall, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've met Artie Kendall, but he preached uh, here one, one evening some years ago. I think it was even before the renovation of the building. So that gives you an idea how long ago it was uh, that he preached here. But uh, it was a remarkable evening. The building was full and uh, he preached. But one of the stories he tells, uh, not on that evening, but on another evening, uh, he tells the story of a minister, I'm not sure if it was himself or others, who uh, during the Second World War had to go to the house of a bereaved mother who had just been given the news that her son had died uh, on the battlefield. And uh, he said, before we even reached the property, we could hear the wails of this woman because of the distraught nature of the news that she had been given. She was wailing loudly, uncontrollably, because the news had come that she had lost her son and it was now too late uh, for him. And so here is this message to the church 
and to the people who will see Jesus coming, that you are going to wail because of him. You are going to mourn because of him. And the idea that came to my mind as I was reading these words was the idea that one day Jesus is going to come back, and for many, it may be too late for them to make a decision for Christ. You see, at this moment in time, we have been called to live by faith. We accept Christ by faith, and we live by faith. Not because of what we can see, and if we look at the world round about us, we're so glad that we don't live by what we can see, but we've been called to live by faith. And so for those of us who have accepted Christ, we live by faith. But for those who have not, they only live by what they can see. And when Jesus comes again, it's too late to apply faith because he's there, he's returned, and he says that he's coming for those who've accepted him and who love him. And can you imagine that moment of understanding, that moment of realization that Jesus Christ has come, and for you it is too late? What a dreadful, dreadful situation. And that may cause within us those who don't know Christ to wail in unbelief and pain because we did not accept the one who had extended the hand of salvation towards us. And so there will be a wailing, there will be a problem for those who don't accept Christ in this life. And we have been given a responsibility to share that message with people, not only in our own country, but across the world, to communicate the fact that Jesus is coming back and that before that takes place, we need to accept him as Christ and Lord of our lives. Then in verse 8, Jesus repeats uh, what he has to say earlier. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, identifies himself who he is, says the Lord God who is, who was, and who is to come. He said that in verse 4, and he's saying it again to these people. He's communicating it to his church. And then John, in verse 9, uh, begins to hear something. Verse, excuse me, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these words, Suffering and patient endurance kind of fit together, but he uses the word kingdom in there as well. And uh, it's interesting that all of these have been put together, that suffering and kingdom and patient endurance are all one thing in terms of John's uh, communication of what Christ is saying. All of these are ours in Jesus today. All of them are ours, were ours then for the church, but also are ours today. And he's communicating something to a people who are under the cosh. These people are being badly treated uh, in the church, and, and these seven churches that you would read of if you went on into chapters 2 and 3. He's communicating something to those who are in really, really difficult circumstances, and if you read between the lines, and you can do if you get a good commentary, 
uh, to go with what you read, you will find that the church was being very, very badly treated indeed by those around him, them. And so when John uh, is writing here, he says, John, I'm John, your brother and companion in suffering. I'm your companion. I'm not sitting up here in my, my, uh, my palace. I'm not here as a, an, an apostle of Jesus Christ uh, in the sort of uh, apostle's chamber somewhere um, sitting in the lap of luxury. No, he says, um, I'm your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. He's communicating something that he says, brothers, I know what you're going through. I know the difficulties that you're facing right now, and I know what it's like to be where you are because I'm suffering as well. And he says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so John is, is um, being captured in this uh, island not because somebody didn't like the way he looked, but because of the Word of God. He was preaching the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, I want to say something that some of the extra-biblical material tells us about the Apostle John. He was an incredibly caring and kindly person. He wasn't the aggressive kind of person who everybody might dislike because of their nature. Um, he was a very loving person. In fact, some of the historical writings about the Apostle John would say that when he was an old man, he would, he would be carried into a church building and put at the front, and he would sit up, be propped up in his stretcher, and he would, all he would say, his sermon, total sermon, would be, love one another, love one another. That was, that was the kind of person that had been transformed by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is. He's been communicating the Word of God to those around him. And he's been telling people the testimony of the transform, transformation that took place in his life uh, because of Christ. And so here he is. He is locked up uh, on the island of Patmos in very difficult circumstances indeed. And then in verse 10, he comes on to communicate uh, what is happening. Uh, on the Lord's Day, uh, on a Sunday, and we know that's a Sunday because um, the, the Sabbath uh, day was a Saturday, and the, the church and the early church began to meet on the first day of the week, and you read about that in the, in the Gospels and in the, the um, Acts of the Apostles and so on. And so here they are on the Lord's Day. Uh, and it's a very good description of, of this man, John, leaving his Jewish uh, heritage behind and moving on to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. And uh, he begins to hear a word uh, being spoken. But it's not just any uh, quiet whisper. This is a, a very loud word. Um, he says, I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever 
been in a, a small place where someone blasts a trumpet, but uh, it just about blows your eardrums out. So here is a very loud noise coming from behind him. This is a word of direction that's coming. It's a very powerful word. And in Isaiah chapter 30, I think it is, it says this, whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And so there's a word of direction that's coming uh, to uh, the church through John uh, the Apostle. And he says, write it on a scroll, uh, what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And uh, I think it was uh, Sinclair Ferguson who one Sunday uh, preached on uh, the first of these churches uh, uh, and was talking about how this letter was not just sent to one church uh, with their name on it, but it was sent to all seven churches at the same time. And uh, so everybody read everybody uh, else's notes. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you've um, had your school report Uh, good or bad, um, handed out to everybody in the street to have a look at, um, to see what they think of it. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. Um, He's writing to all of these churches and all of them at once. And uh, so there's a, 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 a sense by which Jesus is being open with everyone, clearly stating the situation uh, to the church. And verse 12, he says, I turned around and saw the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, where have we seen that before? That statement that comes from the book of Daniel when, when the brothers were thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, there was a fourth person uh, in the flames one who looked like a son of man. And uh, this same description is made of Christ here, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So a remarkable description of Christ. And if you, if you capture some of the essence of this, um, if you consider how the world views Jesus at this moment in time, you've got some who will say, well, uh, I'll just tell him. People like Stephen Fry. I don't know if you heard his statement a couple of years back about if he was confronted by Jesus, what he would say. And he would say, Jesus, how dare you? God, how dare you? (laughs) How dare you do this in the world? And how dare you do that? And uh, um, when we read these words, we discover that it's not going to be like that at all. It's not going to be like that. Here is the one who is the Son of Man, dressed in such a way and incredibly uh, kind of translucent, in his appearance. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, where 
Isaiah sees the Lord for the first time. You'll see a good description of what that is like. He says uh, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he's going around everybody and saying, woe is you and woe is you, and telling them off for all of the things that they were doing. And, and I think there are five or six woes that he, he describes in, in chapter 5. And then in, in chapter 6, um, verse 1, it says, uh, when I saw the Lord in his, in his temple and he's high and lifted up uh, in, the, in the year that King Uzziah died and he describes the, the appearance that he sees of uh, God in his temple and uh, he, he tells you what it's like that the, 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 the angels, the seraphs are flying around the throne and they have wings over their faces and wings over their feet um, to protect themselves from the immense light and intensity of God's presence. And uh, they only could fly with two of their six wings because the other wings were used. And these are the heavenly beings that can't cope with the intensity of the light that is coming from the living God. And we think somehow or another we're going to check God's homework and tell him what's the right way to do things. We think that we can have an agenda in our lives and our governments can put down their, their policies which are totally, totally in disagreement with God's ways and God's purpose and that that's all going to be okay and we'll be able to tell God one day when we meet them, uh, this is what I think. Brothers and sisters, you and I as believers will fall on our faces, never mind those who have pierced him as it's been described earlier on. And so we come, uh, as we read this, uh, these few verses, to, to see the enormity and the incredible beauty and brilliance of the living God that we worship. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. His mouth was sharp like a double-edged sword. I think it's in Hebrews chapter 4 that says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so his word is going to be active on the day he comes to bring judgment to the church. This is not to the world. This is to the church when he brings his judgment to us and for us. And so it's an amazing situation that we find ourselves in this particular study of God's word. He talk, talks about golden lampstands. Now, if you read the last couple of verses of the chapter, you'll discover that the lampstands are the churches and that the stars are the angels of the churches, or at least uh, described as the, the angels. Some would say that these are the pastors, the pastors of these local churches. And so uh, a, a, a very high calling is described there. Um, so the light, the church is to, be, to bring light and salt into our community as described in Matthew chapter 5. You're the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp or put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. The church becomes a lamp stand. And so we are to, to shed light and to continue to shed light even in the deepest of darkness. And of course, the darker that things become, 
the more wonderful that it is when there is light to be shed into that darkness. And brothers and sisters, um, we can see that there is darkness around us, and that darkness seems to be deepening all the time in terms of spiritual darkness. And yet we have been called to be lampstands as our churches shed light into the community around us. And uh, so Jesus being present with his church, he's amongst the lampstands and he sees the work that's going on in the church. Now, I don't have an awful lot more time. I think my time is pretty much gone. But I want to encourage you to uh, continue to look into these verses uh, to see that as Jesus comes, we don't walk up to him and shake hands and say, how are you doing, buddy? But we fall at his feet, verse 17. Even John uh, saw him. He said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Try that one for size, Stephen Fry. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Now, this is the final part I want to come to here. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Can you imagine that? Someone who's terrified out of their wits. In Isaiah, he says that he sent an angel and he says, your sins are forgiven. Here, he says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's our king. That's the one that we've been called to serve. That no matter what happens, and I could go into a lot of detail on that, but no matter what happens, we are with the one who holds the key of death and Hades. That's the God that we serve. We give thanks that he has called us to serve him in this generation. Um, not in our father's generation and not in our son's generation, but in this generation. We've been called to serve, and so let's serve him together faithfully like he has been faithful to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the greatest challenge that mankind could ever face, yet you have become our risen Savior, living for us and through us and in us at this time. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you freed us. We thank you that your blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We thank you that you've now made us a kingdom of priests to serve you and to live for you and to be those who communicate the good news of the gospel and the word of God in our generation. Thank you, Lord, for all that you, you're doing in your church at this time, and we pray that you would revive your church throughout this nation, throughout the nations of the earth, that your name would again be lifted up and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.